Hello and welcome to On the Battlefield with Father Michael Marcantoni and me, Father Joseph Collins, and we are sharing the Christian message of hope and endurance amidst the struggles and suffering of life. Father Michael, great to be with you again today. My friend, why don't you remind everyone where they can find us online and on social media? Absolutely. Always awesome to be here. Um, yes, you can find us on social media, of course, on our main hosting site, which is Anchor FM. We also share out over iTunes and Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts and on Facebook and on the Battlefield Podcast. So uh, you can look for that. Do please send us your questions and comments because we do read them and we like to keep this a dialogue rather than a monologue. And by the time you are listening to this, you should be able to find our On the Battlefield Shorts, OTB Shorts, on YouTube and Rumble. So if you uh, search for OTB or On the Battlefield Shorts, you should be able to find those on that platform as well. Uh, we are a bi-weekly podcast, as you know, but for our new listeners. And if that, which means every two weeks, one of the podcasts goes up and the OTB Shorts will be quick uh, little bites in the in-between weeks. So uh, it's, uh, I'm really excited about them. I like what we've done so far there. And I think we're, it's a great step to making a good thing better. So do find us on Anchor FM, iTunes, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, uh, uh, on the Battlefield Podcast on Facebook, and of course the OTB Shorts on YouTube and Rumble. Hey, hey, hey. The, the, um, the Shorts are also going to be on the Anchor platform as audio only. We'll get those thrown up in case you don't really like watching videos on YouTube or Rumble and rather uh, check it out on Google Podcast or Spotify or Apple, wherever. There'll be five, 10 minutes, either Father Michael or myself. And uh, thank you all for listening today. Uh, kind of on a common theme, but it's such a big deal. Uh, conscience. You know, uh, some of us have very scrupulous consciences and others of us do not. Uh, mine's sometimes often very dead and not, not super active and you've said before that yours can can run amok mine so, tends to be well overactive <laughs> between the if, if you put us together you almost get a healthy person almost <laughs> almost almost we're still imbalanced but uh, let's talk about that um because you know i mean finding the discernment of how to how to deal with uh, with a dead conscience or uh, the discernment to deal with a conscience that that overruns uh, overruns us sometimes is is pretty important. So let, let's just talk about what is a conscience. Where do we get this idea, and and really how to how to deal with it, especially in such a in such a world as ours. Yeah. So what? So the word in Greek, right? Synesis, which is conscience in Greek, um, breaks down into viewing together or a view together and. That's, I think, to talk about how it's supposed to work, that's a really good uh, a really good thing to have in mind because what you're looking at, you're looking at the human being, especially from an Orthodox perspective, not being designed to live in isolation. So whether it is the individual with God, the individual with one another, the great cloud of witnesses mentioned in the book of Hebrews, there's not this isolated sense. So a CNEDC, where you know we're only viewing together if we are in communion, or if, if there's a council. And of course, God, right? Uh, God, all throughout the scriptures, there's mention of His divine council. Well, you, you see some of this breakdown into, uh, you see some of this breakdown into the way He structured the human person, where we are existing not only in community in relationship to one another, but even. In community within ourselves, where we are looking, I've got my uh, I've got my baseline material uh, history and chemical proclivities. I've got the intellectual side, and then there's this conscience where you know God sort of dialogues with us, and we get to discern through and see through reality together. When this is functioning well, you're looking at the human being in council with, with God and in council with. Um, the other members of the Ecclesia, the body of Christ, being able to look and properly appraise reality. And that's what it's there to do. Properly appraise reality and not just appraise reality in its physical facts, but appraise reality in its spiritual content as well. So when you're looking at, um, that's why when you're looking at people who are 
who are fully initiated into that reality, like the prophet Elijah or like uh, the forerunner St. John the Baptist, the way that they view reality is very different. Their prophetic utterances are different because something that seems materially to just be a non-issue to the people around them is suddenly a big deal to them. Like, no, this is, this is disastrous because they're seeing the divine spider webs that weave out from there and say, no, this is why this is a big deal. Or it may go the other way where there's something that everyone is concerned about and they're not. Like where um, Elijah is heading out into battle against a far superior force and his servant Gehazi is terrified because they're staring down a much larger army and Elijah opens his eyes and lets him see the, the heavenly host, the, the heavenly army around them. And he says, fear not, those who are with us are greater than those who are against us. And the implication is that that's Elijah's reality all the time. So with a properly functioning CMBC, a properly functioning council, we're, we're able to look and discern what's the real value of what's in front of us. What happens is uh, because of sin, we don't function that way. We, we have to struggle to function healthily and properly in that mode. So I think the first part we want to talk about is actually the excess of conscience, what in uh, my former associations would be termed overscrupulosity. And to discuss overscrupulosity, I want to throw out the tidbit that in the Roman world, in the ancient world, proper piety was considered essential. One of the most used titles for the emperors was most pious. I mean, you know, like proper piety was considered essential to the, uh, to the correct functioning of the cosmos. But its excess, when it went to an excess, what we would call overscrupulosity, when it went into an excess, it was considered bad. And in excess, it was called superstition. superstition. So for the ancient Romans, superstition didn't refer to um, a belief that was superfluous. It referred to an overscrupulosity, a misguided, unguided, uh, over nitpicky use of what should be a good misuse of what should be a good thing. So overscrupulosity is a huge problem. Uh, scrupulosity, or to be scrupulous, is just to be what? To be diligent, thorough, uh, extremely attentive to details. Would that be accurate? Yeah. Yeah, on its surface, right? I mean, just being baseline scrupulous is not bad, but as with so many things, you've got a razor's edge. So right. you could be, you can be, we've all been with those people. Like there's, there's a big difference and you've seen it. There's a big difference between someone who is, you know, well put, well organized and attentive to details versus just the, the overthinking micromanager that is just unbearable. And we, we've all dealt with that. And maybe some of us have been that person. Maybe some of us have known that person. But what's interesting is underneath it, there is an anxiety and an anxiousness. And that's what makes it so unbearable. And I think that's, that, that's, that's really where we start to see the havoc that overscrupulosity can wreak. Because in trying to rein in that anxiety through the overuse of attentiveness, you create more problems than you solve. So there, there's a really good book that I read a few years ago. It, it's called The Prophets. It's by a, a rabbi and a Jewish university teacher by the name of Abraham Joshua Heschel. Have you ever heard of it or him? No, no. Anyway, but in that book, he talks about about the prophets and, and like Elijah, they, they're very much tuned into God and they're very scrupulous undoubtedly so because their their conscience is so pricked by sin that that any little bit of sin is is like hell to them their consciences are so tuned in to the divine will and the divine life that even something that we look at when we're reading through the the testimony and the writings of the prophet something that might look to us like what's the big deal what well, was obviously a very big deal to them and a very big deal to god so I think finding that razor's edge balance is important, but it's found in a life devoted to Christ and to prayer. Um, you know, like that, like uh, I think a nice definition of, of conscience or something that we see within ourselves is that that a, a properly tuned 
conscience is it's like it's pointing at our fault it's an internal mechanism that allows us to see fault that needs to be fixed it's it's heaven calling us away from the path of hell that we're on in a way and and that can get out of certainly get out of whack because then we can just become uh, micromanagers of our own consciences and it can be a runaway train where every time some little thing seems like a sin we we get anxious wrapped around and uh, wrapped around the axle with it and i don't deal with that i mean that, that's not exactly my one of my my vices i tend to be the opposite way so what is it what does it look like to be over scrupulous what does it do to your soul what does it do to your mind what what is a day in the life of, uh, of an, an over-scrupulous person look like, Father Michael? Yeah, and so, I mean, having, having dealt with that myself, I, it, it looks very anxiety-ridden. Like, again, because you don't feel that you can properly, you, not, it's not that you don't feel, so you can't properly appraise the world in which you live, but you don't feel capable of appraising a lack of danger. That's the real issue. So you are actually incapable, right? When you're in that mode, you're actually incapable of accurately appraising the world in which you live in, right? So when we look back to Elijah and Gehazi, they're both, their, their appraisals are both consistent with their mode of perception. When Gehazi looks at the troops that are with him and Elijah and looks at the incoming army, he is accurately appraising that the incoming force is larger and that numerically the odds are against them. He hasn't drawn an incorrect conclusion. Their force is smaller. The incoming force is larger and better armed. On paper, mathematically, he's got a point. Elijah doesn't contradict that point, but he has information that Gehazi doesn't have. Gehazi doesn't have the perception to see what Elijah sees, and that is there are unseen realities that are buttressing us that are going to make up the difference and give us the victory. So I'm going to open your eyes to that, and you can see the other side of the story. Um, but, you know, Elijah can see what Gehazi sees, but he can also see more. So they're, they're, both, they're both being completely reasonable within the set of data that they have to process. When you're living in overscrupulosity, it's a whole other ball of wax because you're unable to appraise the data. You don't necessarily realize that. So you, you, you appraise that there may be a problem, but you can't be sure. You can't be sure how, how serious the problem is. The one thing you can be sure of is that you don't want to be on the wrong side of it. So everything becomes a crisis. Everything becomes uh, the end. Everything becomes uh, a, uh, a, like a, a big deal, as it were. And so it's not that there's little sins and big sins, but when we're, when we're you know, I mean, although the scripture does say there is a sin that is unto death and when it's not, but nonetheless, you're looking and rather than appraising and saying, hey, this is how this particular passion is making my life unmanageable, um, you get to look and say, I there may be a danger. I'm afraid of missing the danger. And so by default, we're going to assess everything as kind of a life and death mortal struggle. And we're trying to shore off uh, our own deficit by over appraising everything. But in the meanwhile, you end up creating the very havoc that you seek to avoid. And that's, uh, that's a big part of the problem. So you end up creating the havoc that you seek to avoid and then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because now you really do have big problems on your hands, but you created them. Um, but it comes from, it, it really does come from a baseline of not feeling like you have the freedom to say, this is not the end of the world, or that's okay, or nothing to worry about here. Like, or in other words, you don't feel like you can let your guard down, which makes it, which makes it uh, very easy to go hand in hand with something like combat PTSD or 
uh, other anxiety disorders where you're looking like I, if I let my guard down, I get hurt, I get hit, you know, minds go off, whatever. Um, and so for people who had to live through life and death scenarios where their survival depended on the guard staying up, uh, it, it can be very easy to, to move into. And it can be very hard to move out of because there's sort of the false perception that what kept you safe was that constant on guard moment. Um, over scrupulosity, ultimately it overstresses you. You can't stay that way forever. Your life will break down, your relationships will break down. Um, you'll either go the other extreme and become a complete atheist, say, well, I can't, because I, I can't do this so extremely, we're not doing it at all, right? Very few people come to a middle ground. You'll either say, I can't do this at all, um, so you'll just leave the whole thing behind and go into hedonism, or you can become just so wound tight that you, your life is unlivable. And very often, one self-medicates. Some people self-medicate through a lack, through over-control. But a lot of addicts have actually very highly developed um, senses of scrupulosity and use their chemical release to sort of uh, check out from the guilt. Like it's, you know, it takes the edge off. But to a non-addicted person, taking the edge off means being able to set my feet up and relax. To an addicted person, taking the edge off uh, can sometimes, for some people, not everyone, but for some people, particularly the overscrupulous, taking the edge off can mean um, I can stop feeling like uh, human garbage for five minutes and, and feel like maybe I'm not terrible and, you know, worth existing. And, and it's, it could be a really sad thing. So, again, all of that would have been under the heading of superstitione, superstition. And the part of the problem with Roman superstition is you'd look and say, because it's over applied hyperscrupulosity, too much value is given to the wrong things. Like, so you look at the things that are superstitious today, like, oh, don't walk under a ladder, it's bad luck, right? Well, we look at that, go, that's clearly quote unquote superstitious by our modern definition. But also, if you talk to any carpenter, they don't walk under ladders. It's also a bad idea to do that. Stuff gets dropped from ladders all the time. Or you could bump the ladder and cause someone to fall off. There's a lot of non-superstitious reasons to not walk under ladders. And all of the bad things that could happen while walking under ladders are also unfortunate. Something could fall on you. You could knock the person off the ladder. Um, at a bare minimum, you could distract them and they mess their work up, whatever. I mean, all of those things are unfortunate. So, you know, again, th there's an example that razor's edge. Like, hey, by the way, being over scrupulous about this is superstitious. Also, still not a good idea to go under ladders. So what I heard you saying was that, like, for an over scrupulous conscience, that it, it's like a tormentor. It won't let you. It won't let you be if you let it run amok because it, because you can buy into the idea that it's actually it's a protective skin over your life, like protecting you from the evils of sin, protecting you from the evils of of Afghanistan, protecting you uh, from the evils of the political regime here in the United States, whatever. But it becomes uh, an over an over amplified voice that if you take it too seriously can actually run you off the rails uh, towards anxiety, uh, use of, of drugs and alcohol, all sorts of other coping mechanisms, because it's gone too far. So the thing that may be in place, or at least that you perceive as being in place to protect you is actually doing you significant harm. Did I hear you correctly in that? Yeah, I'd say to I'd say to a great deal. Like I'd say to uh, to to a large to a large degree, because there's that along with the anxiety, there is that sense of vulnerability and powerlessness. Like you you sense that there there is an evil, there is a threat. You also believe, you also kind of believe yourself to be the mercy of it. And so there's all these little things that you might do that are just from a psychological perspective, they are. Um, from their their ways to uh, like self soothing, almost you know like almost ways to sell like I, I I am anxious I am worked up when I do these things, 
the world didn't fall apart, so I feel a little better. So there's an element of self-soothing there. What, what is it that self, I mean, how is anxiety self-soothing? How do you buy that? What, what helps you buy into that? Well, all right, so like, like let's look. Um, all right, so, so obsessive compulsive disorder, right, isn't just washing your hands a million times. It is, yeah, that's the, but what it really is, it's, it's, it's hyperscrupulosity, right? So, uh, you know, you are worried that, so someone might like check the car door a thousand times, check the, the front door a thousand times. What, what the, the way from a, from a psychoanalytical perspective, the way that that self-soothing is, I'm afraid everything's going to fall apart. And I keep checking this one thing that deep down I know really is locked, let's say. And that's kind of confirmation that this, this part of the world didn't fall apart. Like, oh, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. You need the reassurance. The problem, the message that it's okay doesn't fully process. So you're constantly having to reiterate the message and it's done in the redundancy. But the fact, but, but notice the items that are picked. The items that are picked are things that can be of a continual reassurance. The hands are clean. The hands are clean. The door is locked. The door is locked. The door is locked. It is locked. It is locked. And I'm afraid of everything before and after this, but this is, this is locked in. This is here. This is solid. Um, and it's a really scary thing. I mean, to be trapped in that, is, it's, abs- it's actually terrifying. You know, uh, because you're looking and saying, hey, I, and then out, as soon as we will step away from this, what's on the other side? And that's what I'm scared of. That, that's that's kind of the way that an overscrupulosity works. So if I'm if I'm overscrupulous about like, let's say, um, I don't know, I pick something uh, like my the, my tone of voice. Right. I'm overscrupulous, let's say, about uh, about using a kind tone of voice. Well, I mean, what's what's the baseline truth? Okay, having a pleasant, kind tone of voice is a good thing for effective communication. You know, being kind and loving in communication is a good thing in general. Um, where the overscrupulosity would come out, how often do I have to check that? How overnice do I need to be on top of it? Uh, how many times do I need to apologize if, for any variety of reasons, my tone wasn't where it should be? Um, but... What that is, is, you know, once you, well, someone who's struggling with that, once they hear that it's all right, they might have to hear that it's all right half a dozen times. But it's because you don't really believe things are all right. You don't believe you can let your guard down. Um, and, and it's what people who don't suffer with that don't realize is that there is it, the, the soothing from hearing that it's okay doesn't last but it's like a crisis. It's like, if, if I don't get this, I, I, I won't know that the world is okay. So you're, you're, it goes back to what we we're saying in the beginning, and that is, it, is the, it, it loops into an inability to accurately perceive and assess the condition, to, to accurately perceive and assess, or in other words, discern through the conditions that we're, we're observing. Is this really a threat? Am I really in danger? Is this really a problem? And we're in a bigger, and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a harder road to navigate now because with the proliferation of the internet and all the various forms of media, good and bad, that come across it, um, none of the voices are nuanced. So everyone says they're the expert, right? No matter what the issue is. No matter what the issue is, I mean, pick it, you know, pick whatever divisive issue you want. Anybody who is speaking on it in that sphere is absolute and the expert in, in what they're putting across. I, I wish, and it would be, to me, it, someone would have much more credence were they to come on and say, hey, I've got some ideas. I could be wrong, but here's what I'm thinking for these reasons. It would be so sober and even. I would love that. But people don't do that. <laughs> That's not what you get. So if you're dealing, if you're over scrupulous and you're afraid, well, how, how long do you not believe the experts? And then if you didn't listen, then is it your fault for ignoring the expert? Um, and, or you look on spiritual matters. I mean, like the minute I put, you know, like, for example, um, there's few higher spiritual credentials. And I'm not talking about ecclesiastical office here. I'm talking about just you know, spiritual credentials for, for making your, for spiritual street cred within the Orthodox world. Like 
one of the one of the highest spiritual street cred items you can have within the Orthodox world is being an Athenite monk. It doesn't matter whether you're an Athenite deacon monk, an Athenite monk that's not ordained, an Athenite monk that is a bishop or an archimandrite. Like they're not all the same, right? And you've got people on Mount Athos who are really spiritually top notch, and you've got other guys that are barely keeping it together because at the end of the day, they're they're human beings, right? Uh, all living out their lives of repentance. As a matter of fact, as one Athenite monk told me, he said, Father, we're just a bunch of regular guys trying to be good. And he was a, he was an Athenite monk of Greek descent from Florida, right? So he, he had that, you know, we had, he, he communicated the way we communicate here. Um, but like, but just, but if you get on, if you get anywhere on the orthosphere, the, you know, the, the sphere of orthodoxy online, just, the, the idea that you can say an Athenite monk, instant credibility. Well, you can find an Athenite monk who says almost anything, like whatever your opinion is about almost any topic, you can find someone, right? And if you don't side with that authority, well, what happens? Well, you're going against the fathers and the, and the faith and you're a heretic and you're going to hell. Well, no, not necessarily. That's, That's why... Cool. That, that's called an echo chamber. Yeah, yeah. Well, we but we do that. I mean, like, let's not lie about it. And it's not just Athenite monks, right? I mean, it, or in the jujitsu world, just throwing the word Gracie around automatically has uh, automatically has a certain clout, right? I mean, it, it this happens. This is something that happens within our human spheres, and there is. There, there's the kernel of truth is that in order to get where the authorities got, like they, you know, they had to make their own bones. They had to, they had to, you know, they had to make that that reputation didn't come from nowhere. They've got their own validity, but at the same time, you've got to soberly assess and say, you know, titles aside, does this accord with reality? And and discerning that and discerning that is hard. And being brave enough to really, truly discern that with an eye to being ever faithful to the gospel and not to the fear that, what if I pick the wrong side, you know? Uh, it, it is incredibly nerve-wracking. And if you're already dealing with an overactive and over-scrupulous conscience, it can be maddening because the threat of ending up on the wrong side is, um, if you, it, it, it can be paralyzing for someone like that. So... It, it, again, it, it's a it's a real dangerous thing. So that you that that's part of the problem is like, well, where do you turn, and where do you turn if all the titles of authority can say any given thing? Oh, and by the way, and then we're going to get a few people say, well, you know, just look at the scriptures. Well, my friend, I can tell you, you can depending on how you want to quote and misquote and misappropriate the scripture, you can make the scripture say anything you want. Every heretic. Throughout history, has quoted the scripture and quoted it well, and so have the saints. And when the devil, when the devil tempts Christ in the wilderness, he quotes scripture. By the way, and this is something I've said a hundred times. I'll say it one more. When the devil tempts Christ in the wilderness, he does something that is phenomenal, phenomenally uh, malicious and, and evil in a, just a treacherous way, because. He quotes Messianic scripture to the Messiah flawlessly. He takes scripture, he finds that scripture's context, and then he uses it in context, and it's still a lie. Look at that. He didn't lie. He took Messianic scripture and quoted it to the Messiah. He didn't lie, but it still wasn't true. It was still misleading. It was still deceptive. Just giving me a good quote doesn't mean you're on the right track. The devil can give a good quote. He did it with Jesus. So discerning is something else. It's, it's this whole other thing, having a proper conscience, a proper sinidis, where we have the Holy Spirit, we have Christ, we have the faith of the Father, we are attuned to it. We're doing everything in our life of repentance and within our power to be faithful to that. And then we discerningly, bravely step forward into whatever that means. And, and that's harder to do because there will be the voices that say you're wrong. And like, like it's... And you might, and you might be. I mean, it's it, 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 life. If you're really, really trying to live it, is a little terrifying. And to the over scrupulous mind, that's hell. That's that's very hard to deal with. 
Which part is hell? Maybe being wrong? <laughs> yeah. Well, for the overscrupulous mind, right? So if you've got an overscrupulous mind. Well, we share that. We have that in common. I don't like being wrong, and I'm not particularly scrupulous. Well, yeah, but I mean, just the, the but it's the anxiety. It's not that you, for you, for you, it's about not being wrong. For the overscrupulous mind, it's the anxiety of the consequences of being wrong. So the anxiousness. Right. So, okay. So I'm trying to wrap this up in my mind. So for, for the overscrupulous mind and for the underscrupulous mind, uh, the conscience is the same. It, it is part of the divine image within human beings that allows us to introflect and to see. It's a divine gift that allows us to see our sins, our shortcomings, and harm that may come to us due to our actions. Do you think that would be a fair thing to say? Yeah, I do. And then uh, for, for myself, like my conscience, it, it pricks me. I mean, I, I'm aware of my sins, but most of the time, the way that I deal with it is not over analyzing my sin, but actually just pushing it off to the side and moving on to the next thing. So for me, there's, a, there's an enormous level of, of pride and willful ignorance involved with with my conscience is is there any overlap i mean how much of the over scrupulous conscience is is actually pride and and i already heard you say that it's actual it's there is a willfulness to avoid other things by by being ocd towards some things not that you're ocd but just an a, a compulsion to to analyze one part of the thing in order to assuage the other things that are happening around it just to find that security in the midst of the anxiety and for me in the midst of the anxiety of my sin i just don't look at my sin i look past it i i busy myself with a project with an activity something that allows me not to have to introspect or reflect on my sin and actually have to repent there's a huge level of pride involved with that because i'm perfect <laughs> clearly and to know me is to love me, to quote a beautiful old song. Yeah, I, I think I think the overlap certainly comes in the the either willing or nilling, to quote a great man. Uh, the I it's the the overlap occurs I in either willing or nilling, not appraising reality as it is. You may or may not be able to. Now that's because people, you know, when you're talking about having an either overdeveloped or underdeveloped conscience, there's a lot of factors that can go into it. I mean, some of them may be out of your control, you know. So there may be a chemical imbalance, there may be a mental illness, there 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 may be like physiological brain damage going with it. Like I, I mean, some of these things, you know, you're you're talking about certain aspects that can be out of your control you're talking about certain aspects that can be within your control so it it's hard to speak well in broad strokes but in either case what you're looking at is you're saying for an either over or underdeveloped developed conscience you're not engaging reality as it is so um so for elijah and gehazi right reality as it is there's these two lines of battle are closing in on each other each one of them is able to perceive a certain data set. Once they've both perceived the same data set, then the, co then the course of action for it is pretty clear. Um, but an over or underdeveloped conscience would be now we're, we're still refusing to engage accordingly. So it's like, okay, so if my, my conscience is underdeveloped, you may look and say, yeah, I've got a pride issue or a lust issue or whatever, but eh, we'll deal with it. It's not really a big deal. And here's the thing. Just because you don't feel like it's a big deal doesn't mean it isn't a big deal. That's where the overdeveloped conscience in some ways isn't totally wrong. You know, just because you, you don't feel, oh that, that, oh, that was nothing. Well, what makes it nothing? Like God says it's something. So what makes it nothing? Just because you said it's nothing. Well, who made you God? So it's like, it's like, no, God thinks that's a big deal. So maybe it's a big deal. Um, now the question is how big a deal and what are the consequences? What are the ramifications? Um, but then again, here's another thing. 
right? For someone to go to confession and then, you know, they hear, you know, they, they hear, uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing this, this specific phrase is not used in confession, but they hear for all intents and purposes, go and sin no more, right? And what, what they do here is, as for the sins you've confessed, have no further anxiety about them, but go in peace. The grace of the Holy Spirit through my insignificance is you loosen and forgiven. And if I refuse to have no further anxiety about them and refuse to go in peace, well, I mean, that's the fathers say that's a worse sin. Why? Because you're not, you're contradicting the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit has forgiven you, then who are you to second guess that? I mean, so it, it, it's this, in either case, it ultimately boils down to, if I'm going to try to, and I'm going to try to express this as best I can, boils down to a non-engagement with the full data of reality as such, insofar as it lies within your purview. If you haven't heard, you know, have no further anxiety, go in peace, then okay, maybe the anxiety makes sense. If you've heard it, a confession, then it doesn't make sense anymore. So it's that the the ability and so, and so where where it becomes where it becomes a playground that the devil can take advantage of is in that space where we're looking and saying um, you know where we're looking and saying uh, you know I, I'm not letting you out of here I I'm not going to let you start caring about your sins the way you should care because then you will repent or I'm not going to let you let go of these sins because if you were to let go, then you might actually amend your life and get somewhere. Like it's, it's just as deadly. It's just as deadly to convince someone they have no problem while they spiritually kill themselves as it is to force them to wallow in a no longer existent problem while they then neglect and spiritually kill themselves. What the devil wants is our ruin. He doesn't really care how he gets it. Um, you know, uh, uh, there, there's what's interesting. So like uh, to make a pop culture reference here, um, you know, the alien franchise, you know, with the chestburster aliens and all that. They, so they, they, the prequel to that movie, uh, Prometheus, most people didn't like it. I actually liked it, but I also enjoyed, you know, the History Channel's fictional series, Ancient Aliens, where they, they do all that goofy stuff. And it was in that vein. Well, I mean, you know, it's, it, it's, it's entertainment and it's fun. Um, but one of the things in that, one of the things that's... And at the same time, true. How is that true? Everything on the Discovery Channel is true, isn't it? Well, History Channel. The History, oh, the history Channel. Even, even more so. Even I mean, true. Clearly, at some point... Clearly, ancient aliens existed, and they were what the ancients mistook as gods. And there is no god. That's all. There you go. It's aliens. They will return, and they want your soul because they're biohacks. There you go. Hey, no, but you know what's interesting? At some point, the History Channel went from having actual history to, like, just aliens, Nazis, and Bigfoot. Like, it's it's amazing. It's amazing. Uh, But anyway— Everything, anyway. we, everything we know to actually have existed and been true, unlike well, all of the other history written by the West. Yeah, no. How how trippy would it be, right? Like, I mean, kind of like you remember in Men in Black, where like this the the supermarket tabloids were like actually telling the truth, or something like that. Like, oh my gosh, the History Channel was right about everything. You know, clearly like Elvis just went home. Oh my goodness. Well, not Elvis. We're bringing Elvis, dude. We are. We are showing our age. You're making an Elvis reference, my God. But no, but in but Prince. point being, <laughs> so point being, uh, in this movie though, right? There is this black goo that does a million different things. It, it and, and and like this was like it, this is something the movie took like some serious uh, critique for. It's like, well, what does this stuff actually do? Because it mutates one person or it just outright kills another, or it creates an alien monster, or it like it does about 15 different things, all of which contradict each other. Um, but that's actually how the devil's temptations kind of are. The black goo in that movie doesn't really care how it kills you. It just wants you dead. The devil doesn't really care which sin he kills you by in eternity. He just wants you dead. So 
if it's if we're numbing your conscience, if we're over inflating your conscience, if we're doing this, we're doing that, it doesn't really care which of these things work as long as one of them works. That's all he cares about. So he's happy to he can just throw it all out there. And so that's like when you're talking about uh, spiritual realities to people, that's one of the difficult like, well, well, how then if this person went through this and this and ended up this way, and how come this other person who went through that ended up that way? Well, because the devil doesn't care which way he kills you by. It, it can have all these contradictory effects to it as long as they all end in you being estranged from the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's happy about it. He doesn't. He's a chaos monster. He doesn't care which thing works. You are trying to understand a chaos monster in terms of order. That's the thing there's not. Right. They, you're... Why, why would you expect chaos to follow a logical pattern? And life itself, look at the system of life that God instated. It's not linear. It follows his rules, but it doesn't follow our small linear, well, this happened yesterday. I'm going to anchor on what happened yesterday in spite of that today. It doesn't look anything like yesterday. But from point A to B has to be linear, right? No, not at all. Life is well, far more complex. Well, according to, according to the uh, Apocalypse of John, the Revelation of John, the last book of the Bible, he calls Christ the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. Well, 33 AD isn't the foundation of the, before the foundation of the world. He's also telling the truth. A better way to understand these things is as these divine realities that break forth into human existence at certain points in time, but they're eschatological there. They exist divinely and they break into reality at certain junctures you know that's why in the hymn of Cassiani, you know it's easy to make the connection between the sound that mary magdalene hears walking in the garden and the sound that eve hears walking in the garden um well why well you've got the gardener walking in a garden in both cases but as far as god who is outside of space and time you know, as far as he's concerned, it's all the same moment. Why? Because he's not bound to these things the way we are. But here's the, but that's but this is the deal, right? So that that chaos is what absolutely terrifies the overscrupulous mind. That um, the underscrupulous mind doesn't engage it. Either way, they get overrun. Either way, you get overrun. Either you get overrun because you're you're a deer in the headlights, terrified, and it overruns you, or you don't give it due attention and its effects destroy your life. And the answer is repentance. Like a pray, like Gehazi and Elijah, appraise reality with the full data set you have and drive forward. I hear often from, from pious people that the saints, when they say that they're sinners, are just being pious. <laughs> I know what I think of that. I, and, I, and my rebuttal is often... Actually, I think that the closer the saint, like Elijah or any of the Old Testament prophets, get to God, the more cognizant of their shortcomings they become. Because in the end, no matter how holy you as a human being are, you will never be God. And because you will never be God, you will never be perfect. And because you will never be perfect in this life, you will constantly make errors. And, and that is exactly what sin is. So as you approach God, the more aware of your sin you become, but in an appropriate way to tie it back in, because they're aware of where they are on the battlefield. They have a better reference point, and they are more in tune to, to the reality that is Jesus Christ rather than their own pride uh, or um, insecurities. What's your take on that? Yeah, I think we're on the same page. I mean, you know, I, it's it's clear to me that like when the saints say that they're the chief among sinners, they are stating facts. They're saying, "Look, I, I'm, you know, I'm guilty of it all." Like they're they're looking at reality, but they're accurately appraising it, and they're accurately appraising it because being closer to Him, they can see it in sharper relief. So I think I think a good way to look at that is to also look by way of metaphors to look at uh, high level athletes. Because what a high-level athlete, what an Olympic-level athlete means when they say they're eating healthy and working out is not what the you know, average 
suburban dad means by eating healthy and working out. You know, like it, the average suburban dad, what he calls eating healthy and working out, it would not even come close to passing muster um, for a high-level athlete. They'd look at me like, first of all, that's not healthy. And second, that's not even a warm-up. Like, what are we doing here? Um, but we all want those results. We all look at that and say, that's the standard to which we're, we're aspiring. Why don't I have abs like that? Well, I mean, you're not really doing the work that this guy's doing. So we look at the same, we're like, well, then we want results. We want that we're, there are these paragons of holiness. Well, what are they doing? Well, they're really looking at themselves as the chief among sinners. They're really repenting. They're really turning their lives around. I mean, I, we're our half-hearted, we shouldn't be wholly surprised if our half-hearted efforts don't achieve full-time results. And guess what? That's me included. Like, if you, if anybody is enterprising and honest and want to lump Father Michael in with that and say, hey, you're not doing any better, I will agree with you. I'm not. Like, I'm not, I'm not going to defend myself on that one. You're 100% correct. Um, but it also is true. Like, it's also true. So, um, I, you know, I'm happy to take the hard look at myself and be like, yes, I, I'm not getting anywhere. I mean, we kind of know why and okay. Um, but let's, let's at least be honest with ourselves. Um, so, so I think when the, so, and I think when the saints look at themselves and they're like, man, uh, I can see the mark clearly and I'm much farther off than, I, than you would think they're being rigorously honest. Um, but, but that has to be tempered with the knowledge, the other thing that comes from them. They still feel that those imperfect efforts are, A, worth continuing to make. You don't see the saints then lapse into despair and say, man, I am still the chief among sinners. I guess we're just going to hang it up and call it a day. They don't do that. They still believe that those efforts are worth making. And B, that the mercy and grace of God is bigger than their imperfection. That's what tempers it. They're looking and saying, it's still worth continuing on this road. And Christ's bountiful love and mercy and grace is bigger than in my imperfection in this area. So I will be faithful, and I know that he is going to be faithful. And that's bigger than any shortcoming I may have. And that's what makes them sense. So that's how they tempt. And that, that's, that's how you... That's how you you walk that razor's edge between being overly scrupulous and underly scrupulous. The effort is still being made. It's still worth making. His grace and mercy is bigger than my imperfection drive forward. Repentance. Always. I'm a one-trick pony, bro. <laughs> Listen, bro. So, but that's the difference. That that's the That's the bridge between being over or under scrupulous and actually entering the kingdom is yeah. the soul who sees their shortcomings, whether, whether too actively, underactively, or as appropriately as humanly possible for all three camps, the saint and the rest of us is, is a willingness to repent and wanting to be having like you and I had heard when a bishop's hand was laid on our head that the Holy Spirit would make up the gaps that he would fill in that which was lacking. lacking and that filling of the lacking comes through repentance and the grace of God yeah and so and and let's and let's throw another more rigorously honest um, detail in how about very few people are consistently on one end or another about everything all the time. So it's more rigorously honest to say in our life of repentance that my conscience is hyper, uh, hyper, what was it? Overly scrupulous about certain things and underly scrupulous about others. And very, uh, very rarely is it kind of on track. Like that's a more honest, because right now we're kind of painting it in a binary where everyone's like, you know, you're overly scrupulous. Well, you're underly scrupulous. Well, for most people, it really depends on what you're talking about. Like, I can, like, I, I can tend to be, like, there, there are certain moral failings that I'm, I am overly scrupulous about. But I, because of my own background, I am underly scrupulous about physical violence. Like, 
physical violence doesn't bother me, right? But it probably should bother me more than it does. I'm underly scrupulous about that. So what do I know? I know that, okay, I need a course correction in different ways about different topics. I may be overvaluing certain things in anxiety and undervaluing other things. And in both cases, I'm wrong. In both cases, there's a need for repentance, a reorientation of my mind and heart. Because I'm wrong in either case. Whether I'm shooting, whether you're shooting under or over, you still missed. Um, and it's more honest to say that we're off the mark in different ways at different times about different things. But if the devil doesn't care how he gets you off track, does it really matter how you're off track? Like, let's just get back on target. Like, it, it, you know. It, it, the, the details of whether you're overshooting, undershooting, too much to the right or too much to the left are only important insofar as you're making uh, an appraisal of how to do a course correction. It's like, okay, you're under the odds here. In Vegas. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're under here. You're over here. You're a little bit too much to one side or another there. That's only, that's only relevant data insofar as you're using it to accurately get yourself back on track. Otherwise, you know, off by foot, off by mile. You know, so, but what, what Christ asks, like you said, he says, look, be faithful, make the corrections, and the whole, as I love the quote, you brought it up, I'll re-say it, the Holy Spirit which fills all that is lacking. And that's what we count on. But he does ask for our faithfulness. And in the absence of our perfect faithfulness, because no one musters that, he accepts our repentance. And repentance also fulfills the law of God. Groovy. What more can be said? I mean, I, I think you're right. We, it's when you're defining a topic and talking about a topic, having having a binary subject is significantly easier to talk about, and and to lay out your definitions by means of. But the reality is, like you said, that that life is not binary, and we have to deal with the particular issues dealt to us at this particular juncture in time. There are sins that I'm significantly more aware of in my life that I am more scrupulous about and other things like you said that I'm not scrupulous about at all. And when I'm being confronted with those, what do I do? Am I, do I, do I, do I, am I able to taper and temper my over-scrupulosity when I'm doing it? And am I able to see the harm in under underestimating and not wanting to deal with my sin in the other place. That's the important part. What are you doing right now with what is happening? How are you dealing with the specifics of right now? And that's not binary at all, like you said. Yeah, well, and I think, and as with all things, um, I think the the best thing to do is to start small because in all things, consistency is the key. Like you're trying to build a, a habit of prayer, consistency is key. Trying to get in shape, consistency is key. Trying to come to church on time, consistency, whatever it is. Trying to so be decent to be scrupulous? Your, well, consistent. Consistent. The, the proper proper amount of scrupulosity. Uh, because I mean, isn't that you what know, scrupulous means, though? Yeah, I mean, yeah, just being, I mean, kind of, like being attentive, diligent attentive. and thorough to be yeah. attentive to details. So, I mean, like, you're, you know, are you trying to be de- decent to your spouse? I mean, same thing, right? So... But that's, but that's, you know, so like start small, like you're not going to, you're not going to, if you're, if you're losing the small battles, you're not going to win the big battles right away. Like that's just not realistic. But what you can do is it's like, all right, well, you can be a little, you know, you can be a little more attentive. If you find that, you know, you're, maybe you're under or over on patience with your kids right when they come home after school. Okay, so like maybe we just rein that in. Like, let's just work on that. We're not going to work on the whole day, but this five-minute window where you're typically under or over attentive or whatever, like let's just work on that. Like, you start with the small stuff, you know, if you, and then that small stuff builds up eventually. You know, now you're ready for the big time. Now you're ready for the big things. Um, it's just easier to see the big things, and they overwhelm us and overtake us, and we think all is lost. And that's another trick of the devil. No, pick the little things, pick the little victories. And the thing is, those little victories um, will give you the strength and the confidence to go on to the bigger ones. Uh, one thing, I don't know if we've mentioned this here. I think I've, I, I, I know I was having a conversation with about it. 
uh, someone that I was having coffee with the other day. But like in, um, in sports, in fight sports, what's really interesting is um, top-level fighters, their sparring partners are usually not good fighters. Like, so what the, and the reason why people get paid to be um, Tyson or anyone else's sparring partner is so that the champ can get muscle memory and confidence landing those combinations on someone they far outclass. So basically you get paid to be a punching bag. And, 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 but, but here's why. So now when they step into the ring, their body knows and feels, hey, I've won that battle a million times. I know that I can land this six-punch combination a million times because I've been landing it 20 times a day, every day for the past two months. There's no way I'm missing. And that level of com ingrained confidence allows them to get into the ring with a fully resisting high-level opponent and keep that confidence to where they might actually do it under pressure. So but, but how do they get there? Well, they don't get there by practicing on other high-level guys. They get there by kind of eating the white belts. You know, it's, it's, it's really vicious, but it works. And that's kind of the tact we've got to take with these sins and adjustments that need to be made in our own scrupulosity. It's like, yeah, let's fight the small battles that we know we can win and beat them all day, every day. And then you get that spiritual muscle memory of like, yeah, I Oh, I can land this. I can do that. I've got that. Why? Because we've been getting it and we're good there. And that allows you to move on and go forward. Um, but if you just go all out against something you can't win with, then you're just going to break your, your own, uh, you're just going to break yourself down. And that's where your endurance goes and your steadfastness goes out the window. So take the small stuff in your life and do a lot of that. Um, or as we would say, as you would hear in recovery jargon, just do the next right thing. Like, don't worry about fixing three years from now, four years from now. Just do the next right thing, whatever that is, and, and start there. Um, us being a little more specific here on the battlefield, uh, we'll tie that in specifically to Orthodox Christian repentance as it were. So as we wrap this up, um, that word, sinidisi, so it was an internal dialogue with which with which we've talked a lot about how the inter how the Holy Spirit interacts with that. But we we need to have those relationships in our lives, like our spouses, hopefully our children in a respectful way, uh, parishioners, other uh, Christians that that can look us in the eye and and use their insight, their view of the battlefield to call us out when we're wrong. And for us to get out of our own head, because I think sometimes when I'm overscrupulous, it's because I'm in my own head. There's a reality that exists within my own psyche and persona that isn't actually real. And sometimes it takes somebody else to say, yo, bro, are you for real right now? You got your head buried so far into the sand that you have no clue what's happening out here. And you need to take a step back, get your stuff right and move forward. So we, we have to have that, that three-pronged approach. The Lord our God, dealing with ourselves through repentance with Him, and then relying on others to help us see and to work through uh, the faults uh, that we have and the, and the stuff that we got going on. And we have to have and those people, we need to trust them. And even sometimes our worst enemies are our best friend because they're the ones that are going to be like, dude, you're, you're an epic jerk and you need to knock it off, man. I don't even like being with you. Yeah, I mean, you know, and so what's interesting is the way that, interestingly enough, that sort of counsel approach is the way that Christians speak traditionally, speak about all of the data in the Orthodox Christian lexicon. So like when, you know, when, like if you're, you know, if someone, if you're talking about a subject and someone says, yeah, well, St. Alexi says, like they're saying it like they heard this guy say it. Well, yeah, but according to, you know, but according to St. Maximus, the such and such, I mean, they're quoting these things like these are friends, people they know, people they trust. Here's a trusted voice that I know. It's not just, it's not like, well, in, in paragraph five of chapter two in this book. No, no, no. It's like, no. Part of the council, part of the family, part of the body has authoritatively put out and they're pretty, they're a pretty good source. Uh, so 
it's starting to look at the rest of our Christian Orthodox Christian life, like, hey, here, here is the counsel and the source material, and it's reliable. And we speak about it in that intimate terms, as opposed to just like, here's an academic citation. Um, so a little, again, to go back to the CNBC, a little perspective management, as it were. Well, Father Joseph, as always, it is a pleasure. Um, I'm so glad we did this. Uh, and let's get some more of those on, OTB shorts up. I'm excited about that. Uh, everyone do check us out here at Anchor FM and uh, Spotify and iTunes and Apple Podcasts uh, on the Battlefield Podcast on Facebook. And, of course, the OTB shorts on uh, YouTube and Rumble and audio only on Anchor God bless you all. May the Holy Trinity bless and protect you always and keep fighting the good fight. We will see you next time on the battlefield.